So my talk is called uh, Teleology, Providence and Predestination. Uh, the focus is mainly on predestination, uh, which um, is in the title of your program, but tends to get a bit neglected um, compared to the other two, uh, these kinds of events. So, so that's what I want to cover. Um, I'm mainly, mainly going to focus on <clears throat> three enriching accounts of predestined lives. Um, the first one is a spiritual interpretation of the book of Exodus, uh, which I find uh, of enormous um, spiritual benefit. Um, in fact, I'm doing a penitential program at the moment called, called Exodus 90. Uh, so um, it's a penitential program for men, uh, started in the United States, like so many other good things. Um, and uh, a lot of men are, uh, are working on this at the moment. So we're trying to get um, into a state of penance. Um, and then looking at the power of the sower. Uh, and then Aquinas on the life of grace, which was the main focus of my doctoral research. And then I want to draw those le lessons of those accounts together. What could we learn about predestination from these accounts? Uh, and then uh, the conclusion. Okay. Um, I think as was mentioned earlier in the introduction before Professor Oberg's talk, um, teleology is back, of course, <laughs> um, in so many ways. And uh, there's still a bit of embarrassment about this. So people call it other things, you know, things that look teleological, teleonomy, they say, or emergence, right? Um, but the big lesson of the last 60 years or so is teleology is back in a big way across many phenomena. Um, and I'm not going to talk about this much, but if you want to do, I can talk endlessly about it uh, in the Q&A if you want me to do so. Uh, but I'll mention one thing in passing, which is not always appreciated. Um, so you'll see in this picture, you see snowflakes, a great example of teleology. Every snowflake's a bit different, uh, all very ordered and, and all beautifully ordered, symmetrically ordered. And there's a, a picture of a rose. Uh, Biology is coming back in mechanics, you might say, uh, when you look at the rose and look at the snowflake. Um, but there's also uh, what you may recognize here, some of you. Uh, this is the pattern of the trajectory of a strange attractor. And now strange attractors entered popular cult of Jurassic Park. So the, um, the Jeff Goldblum figure, I can't remember the actual names in the film, but the Jeff Goldblum figure, uh, has a, a sort of chat-up line with the lady scientist who's there, and, and he says something like, uh, well, it's all about strange attractors, you know, and uh, he says, um, I, I refuse to believe that you are unfamiliar with the concept of attraction. Uh, so I thought, ah, oh, this is strange attractors entering popular culture. Uh, a strange attractor is a telos, uh, because uh, they mark, a strange attractor is the, is the end point of a, of a so-called chaotic system. Uh, the system moves towards a final form. Uh, and this is a huge revolution. Uh, back in the early 20th century, um, there was a huge fuss about entropy because entropy is time asymmetric. Uh, and that itself was a huge cultural shock in the world of physics. Uh, but in fact, um, there is lots of other teleology in physics. In physics, not just biology, in physics, things moving towards final forms. The reason we've missed this since Newton is we focus on the systems we can integrate or the things we can sort of pretend we can integrate or nearly integrate. Um, and the things we can integrate over time are not teleological. Um, so a Newtonian system, if you reverse time, it doesn't look any different um, in the sense that you couldn't tell whether the clock is running forward or backwards. As one example, if you look at the orbit of a planet around the sun, you reverse time uh, and you reverse space, uh, you get back what you started with. How can you tell whether time's moving forward or backwards? So for a long time, it's been a big problem, uh, um, at least in the sense that the time symmetry of Newtonian mechanics seems to conflict with the time asymmetry um, of our everyday world. If you drop a cup on the floor and it shatters, it's clear um, that time is only moving one direction. If you, if you to make a film of that and run it backwards, it was clear that you were looking at a reversed, uh, a reversed sort of time. So time is asymmetric, um, but time is uh, symmetric uh, in Newtonian systems. But the last 60 years, we started to look 
are those systems which are beyond the simple two-body case. Uh, and lo and behold, teleology uh, emerges. And this is just one of many examples. And I get emotionalized here. This is Aristotelianism re-emerging on a computer screen. There's um, uh, a bit of a genius at Rome um, called Gianfranco Basti. Uh, I remember he, he had understood this. Almost no one else did. Uh, he understood this. Uh, I only understood about a third of what he was saying in his lectures at Rome, but uh, uh, th that third changed my life. I often wonder what I missed. Anyway, um, teenage is back. I won't say any more about that. Uh, uh, um, teenage is back. People ought to recognize this more often than they do. And there has been an attempt to try to educate <laughs> at least the physicists. Um, and the sort of scientifically literate, and uh, but but it hasn't really made much impact. Philosophers of science, you have to be careful of philosophers of science. Most of them are really happy with the kind of picture of science that ended with the death of Kant. Uh, I pointed I pointed this out in seminars, and I said, well, you know, it's very interesting, but the world's moved on since the nineteenth century, and they acknowledge the fact, then they just carry on as if nothing's happened. Um, but uh, the arrow of time, it's a, it's a very important attempt to get this idea of return of theology back uh, into the into consciousness. It's not taught much in the philosophy of science. It's not, uh, the public generally is not aware of it, but there it is. Uh, the content of my talk today, uh, I've written a chapter about it uh, in this new book called Divine and Human Providence, uh, edited by Ignacio Silva um, and Simon Maria Kopf. Um, and I'm also gonna talk a little bit about Life of Grace, which I talk about in my book, the second verse perspective in Aquinas' ethics. So there's three references. I'll mention them again at the end of the talk. So providence and predestination. Um, so here's the big thing. In the Christian world, there's the kinds of indirected action talked about. Uh, one is providence. Providence comes from a word meaning to foresee, conveying the notion of divine direction of the cosmos, and human affairs with wise benevolence. It's not an exclusively Christian term. You can find it in some of the Greek philosophers as well. Um, but God, according to mainstream Christian belief, articulated by St. Thomas Aquinas, has given his creatures the dignity of being causes. So that's, um, this is a problem that uh, used, to have, used to come up a bit in Greek philosophy. Certainly in Christian philosophy and theology, how do we reconcile divine and creaturely causation? And such questions become more complex in the context of the life of grace. After I ask my students, what is a Christian? And they kind of think I'm going to try, kind of try and trick them and they, they kind of stumble a bit. Um, is, it, is it what you say or what you do or what you are? And the Christian answer is very much that is what you are. Sorry, the Catholic answer particularly is what you are. Um, and in, the, in, the, in Catholic theology, we talk about the life of grace, the supernatural life of grace. Protestantism has reinvented this, this, this idea or has rediscovered it, and they call it being born again. But it's actually a Catholic idea for the Middle Ages, at least, uh, the idea of the supernatural life of grace. And I think it's the biggest issue in theology today, understanding how this supernatural life works, because most, many Catholic intellectuals have almost forgotten this, which is kind of tragic. Um, just to mention it, life of nature, life of grace, you can find uh, there are sort of parallels. Uh, the contemporary catechism of the Catholic Church talks about this, the natural life. So you're born, the supernatural life. Baptism, oh, you're born again. Um, there are virtues of nature, which Aristotle mapped out in great detail in his famous Nicomachean Ethics. And there are virtues of grace. Um, it was, it was mentioned in the previous pre uh, lecture that um, about the five proofs of existence of God, which is one article in the Summa Theologiae, one article. Um, there are 1,004 articles on the virtues of the life of grace. And that material in Aquinas is almost never studied. Um, and for my doctorate, I, I got so interested in this. Why is all this stuff ignored? Um, I'll come on to that later. Anyway, uh, in a natural life is food and drink, and there's a supernatural life, and there's a food of a supernatural life, the Eucharist. Um, 
I'd love to ask you a question at this point, if anyone knows. Does anyone know what word in the Our Father we cannot translate? Anyone know what word in the Our Father we cannot translate? Does anyone happen to know and is prepared to ask, answer? Maybe you're all mute. Daily. Uh, okay. Daily, thank you so much. Epiousion in Greek. It doesn't appear anywhere else in the Bible. It doesn't appear anywhere else in any ancient Greek literature. Um, Jerome had a go. Jerome uh, invented a Latin word for the Greek word. He said, give us this day our super substantial bread. Epiousion, our super substantial bread. Uh, so we need a, a supernatural food for the supernatural life. And we've got this society, uh, which is perfect as a society, but <laughs> extremely imperfect as regards all its members today, alive today, uh, the church. Um, and then, then there's this goal of the Christian life, which is the vision of God, which is a, um, a transfiguration of the classical concept of human happiness. So anyway, there it is. Um, I'll touch on this issue again a bit later. Uh, so predestination. So we've got an idea of providence and now predestination. Um, well, predestination is directed to bringing about the end of the life of grace, the conclusion of the life of grace. Um, and it's so important, it has a, a distinct name, predestination. Predestination is end-directed action of the life of grace. Providence is broader. It includes uh, the life of nature. From a Christian worldview, predestination is a species of providence, uh, but it's also the ultimate goal and a reason for the existence of providence more generally. The, the predestined rescue of human beings from sin and the achievement of final glory for at least some of them is a long, rich, and complex story in Scripture. Uh, the whole of Scripture is a giant rescue plan, um, and it's all about bringing about the goal of predestination. So I've got a picture of it here. I tried to try to show a visual of these of these two actions. Providence is the broad category, um, the way things in general are directed, and the way nature is governed in general. Um, but if Christianity is right, the goal of all that is, to, is the goal of predestination. Um, and the early Christians had a pretty strong sense of this. So um, St. Justin Martyr's Letter to the Roman Senate, it's a fantastic read, uh, 180 AD, basically says, you, the Roman Empire, only exist for us, you know. We're the soul of the world. So um, I don't know what, we don't know what the Roman Senate thought of that, but... Um, we do know that early Christians thought this is what it's all been about, the whole action of the world um, towards uh, a situation which at least some human beings will achieve the goal of predestination, which is the vision of God uh, in the kingdom of heaven and in the new heavens and new earth. So clearly, if one is going to look at providence, it's important to look at predestination as well. And what I find, however, in the literature is these things are almost never considered together. So you have articles about predestination, and you have articles on providence, and they, they don't ever sort of meet much. Um, uh, now, if you take Aquinas' advice seriously, that we ought to look for the, for the end of a thing, then to understand providence, we need to look at predestination. Part of the problem is the way predestination for the last five centuries has been a bit like Japanese silicon chip manufacturers. Now, I mentioned Japanese silicon chip manufacturers because um, 30 years ago, I, I worked in business for quite a while. I always remember a story uh, by some of my colleagues about uh, ordering silicon chips from Japan, uh, computer chips from Japan. And um, they would stipulate, uh, a, 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 um, say, a 98% success rate for these chips. And the Japanese would deliver um, a, a big box and a little box. The big box was the 98% that were working, and the, and a little box were all the chips that weren't working. And um, they were always very precise about this. And people have come to think of predestination as, as unilateral divine action. Uh, they've not looked at the stories of predestined lives so much. That's what I want to get back to in this in this presentation. Um, so the, 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 there's been a narrowing of the categories of causation. Uh, questions about predestination today have tended to narrow down to a few similar and interrelated questions, uh, such as, 
if God predestines at least some persons to glory, is there any role for human freedom in achieving this goal? As you may know, Protestantism is riven over this question. Um, I think it's sort of a Calvinist, Ar Arminianism, I can't remember quite what they're called anyway. But anyway, there's a lot of battles over these things uh, in the Protestant world. Um, and does God infallibly elect some to heaven, leaving others for hell? You know, are people predestined to hell? Um, and starting with simple ways of causation, personal action, none of the simple ways of dividing up the relative divine and human contributions seem wholly acceptable. So uh, the reason the battles have been so interminable is that the toolkit seems too small to work with. So um, that's what I'm going to look at here. So I think we need to expand our imaginations and we need to look at what, what are actually the accounts of predestined lives. Um, and I've got it's like an Aristotelian approach to the life of grace. How does this work? Can we have the humility to learn from the actual examples? And I'm going to look at the spiritual interpretation of the book of Exodus, Jesus' parable of the sower, and an interpretation of Aquinas' account of the life of grace. So uh, let's get on with the, the main body of my text. Uh, what I'm going to do is, is present the, uh, these cases and then summarize them at the end. So let me start with the spiritual reading of Exodus. And what's amazing to me is even today, many Christians don't know about this. Um, and I've often explained it to a student, a graduate student, for example, and they are shocked um, at the spiritual reading of Exodus. And part of the problem is that we have partly forgotten how most of our ancestors used to read the Bible. So um, th there were actually four senses of reading the Bible right up to at least the end of the Middle Ages. Uh, there was a, a sort of literal sense, not literalistic always, so they would recognize parable, but let's call it, but it was generally called the literal sense. And then there were three spiritual senses, the allegorical sense, this is when, when persons, events, or objects under the old law are read as signs of the new law. And we'll come, and this, it'll, the Exodus is all about this. Um, and then there's the moral or tropological sense when uh, persons, events, or objects are read as signs of what we ought to do. And then there's an interpretation of signs of future glory uh, in terms of um, future glory, which is called the anagogical sense. So the city of Jerusalem. Can be, can be actually interpreted spiritually in three different ways. So there's, there's the literalistic sense, sorry, literal sense, the physical city on earth, the allegorical sense, the symbol of the church. Uh, there's a moral sense in terms of the dramas uh, that the uh, city is involved with. Um, and of course, it's also the only city on earth and in heaven, uh, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. So um, there's a spiritual sense of things. Now, in the case of the book of Exodus, we're given a clue. The New Testament gives us a clue of how to interpret Exodus. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 4. It's fantastic. Uh, I want you to know, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. There was a rabbinical tradition just about the time of Christ of the rock following the people of Israel through the desert. Um, and you uh, so here, um, at least some items in the story of Exodus are being reinterpreted in the light of the New Testament. And, and the crossing of the Red Sea is baptism. It's a baptism. Um, and then the Catholic uh, rite of baptism, there's a reference to crossing the Red Sea. So it's incorporated into the rite of baptism. Um, now, the rock was Christ. That's not an ordinary metaphor. An ordinary metaphor would be, the Lord is my rock, uh, Psalm 18.2. Um, but, uh, so let me just show you the difference here. Um, I've got a bit further on. So an ordinary metaphor. The Lord is, Lord is my rock. God is rock-like. That's, uh, that's using the natural qualities of rock um, to attribute something to God. So that's an ordinary metaphor. But to say the rock was Christ, God in, in this, is this rock in this story. 
Um, so the supernatural characteristics of the rock in the story of Exodus are associated with Christ. Now, if you remember from the book of Exodus, the rock is struck in the desert and water comes out. And those of you familiar with the Gospels will know this is exactly what happens when Jesus is, um, uh, when the spear is thrust into Jesus' side on the cross and blood and water come out. Um, it's amazingly rich in the spiritual sense. It's been discredited since the late Middle Ages. Um, it's sort of used like implicitly in a lot of Christian hymns, certainly in Christian art. But it's it's um, it's it's all been sidelined a lot in uh, the last hundred years. <coughs> okay, um, I mentioned in passing the spiritual sense has been immensely important. It helped convert a lot of. Um, Hellenistic Jews to Christianity at the beginning of the church. Uh, it also helped in the conversion of St. Augustine. St. Augustine used to hear the sermons of St. Ambrose in Milan. And the Old Testament struck him as a bit crude, frankly. Uh, but when he heard St. Ambrose give the allegorical interpretations, he thought, ah, now I understand. And it sort of helped smooth the path for the conversion of the great Augustine. Okay, so that's the second, uh, the spiritual sense of scripture. Um, obviously, example, Moses drawing water from the rock, Exodus 17, Numbers 20, and of course, water from the side of Christ, um, John 19, 34. Uh, but water coming from Christ is also mentioned elsewhere in the Gospels. Okay, so um, we started with this clue. Uh, Cross of the Red Sea's baptism. Uh, what are the other things in the story then? Uh, well, 40 years in the wilderness. That's this life. Um, I often have to encourage people a bit because they have to be and say, oh, my spiritual life's very dry at the moment. And I say, oh, well done. You're well into the desert. Uh, it's only 40 years long, don't worry. Um, and, uh, uh, but, you know, this, this, is, this, this is the Christian life. You know, one into the desert. Um, but we're fed with miraculous bread from heaven every day. Well, what does that mean? Well, obviously... John chapter 6 makes a connection. Uh, that's the Eucharist. John chapter 6. Uh, crossing the River Jordan, the river that flows into the Dead Sea, the river, the, the, the Sea of Death. Um, obviously, that is a symbol of death. And the Promised Land, the Kingdom of Heaven. So, suddenly, the book of Exodus, to the Christian reader, isn't just a story about weird and wonderful things that happened, maybe... 35 centuries ago um it's about our lives now um maybe you already know this stuff but a lot of christians don't know it i promise you and it brings the old testament to life today as it did as it has done for most of the last 20 centuries before we neglected all this stuff okay so that's a story now um this is a story about a predestined souls so I'll come back to that and draw the lessons out uh, at the end. Incidentally, um, I'd better ask you, oh, I'm just dying to ask you questions. What is, what is the new ark of the new covenant? Can you guess? Uh, I'm sure that many Dominicans here certainly will know. Um, but it, it carried the word of God. Yes. What does that represent? What carries the word of God in the New Testament? We have a couple winners in there. Sorry, say again? We have a few winners in the chat. Several people saying Mary. <laughs> yes. And, and obviously, my, my non-Catholic brethren say, you know, brethren friends say to me, why is Mary so important to Catholics? I say, well, have you read about the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament? You know, big stuff. Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, that was important. And the Ark of the Covenant, again, it's not just weird stuff 35 centuries ago. Uh, there's um, uh, there's got to be there's, there's some contemporary meaning to all this. Right, um, the parable of the sower. I hope you're all familiar with the parable of the sower. I love this parable. Um, so it's so simple, like everything spoken by the word of God. Uh, a sower went out to sow, um, and the sower sowed seed in the ground. And some seed falls along the path, the hard path. You know, there's a hard path here. Uh, that's not got much future as seed. Um, and the birds come and devour it. And some seed falls on rocky ground. Uh, not much soil, springs up straight away. Jesus is my best friend, whatever. You know, I've heard that you know, I've come across Christian communities where this happens. Um, 
and it's got no depth, no depth of soil, and the sun scorches it, and, and it withers away. Some seed uh, falls upon thorns, and the thorns grow up and choke it. And some seeds falls on good soil and brings forth grain, a hundredfold, sixty and thirty. Uh, now, um, I tend to find when I ask people, where are we in that parable? If I was speaking to an Anglo-Saxon, uh, we're the seed. <laughs> because the great heresy of the Anglo-Saxons uh, is Pelagianism. Uh, Pel every, every nation has its own heresy. Every cultural group has its own heresy. And the British and the Americans, we have the heresy of the self-made man, you know. And we're the active principle, obviously. But we're not, actually. We're the passive principle. We're meant to be the passive principle with the soil. Um, but uh, depending on the, on the quality of the soil, we either do or do not get plants. Uh, and I'll come back to this issue uh, later. Um, obviously, you know, hardness of heart, um, the hard ground doesn't take the seed, of saying mortal sin, non-repentance. Um, uh, of course, the soil can come back with a plow. That's where the pain starts and um, break up that soil. Uh, so welcome, welcome to suffering. Um, and uh, putting down roots, uh, uh, again, you know, the soil can be broken up a bit more. The need to study and practice our faith, the need to practice, you know, need to pray every day. Clearing out the fruitless plants, um, the weeds. Uh, the big problem today, but of course, is the internet and all the distractions. There was a book, I think, published a few years ago called Distracting Ourselves to Death. That's a, it's such a, a powerful and correct title. Because uh, we are uh, in so many ways, um, so we need to need to clear space um, for the uh, gospel seeds to bear fruit. Okay, so that's my second little story. Let's go to my third little story, which is Aquinas and Life of Grace. This is a systematic account. So um, I mentioned earlier that people don't really study Aquinas on the virtues, uh, and this has actually been a problem for a long time in Catholicism because. Uh, we tend to have a prejudice. The prejudice is that uh, Aristotle taught us about virtue, and Aquinas follows Aristotle. Therefore, uh, basically, um, Aquinas on the virtues is Aristotle plus some bits. It's a bit like the um, uh, geocentric models of the solar system. So uh, adding some epicycles. Um, that's how uh, the Neotomists used to interpret Aquinas. And when they failed, which they did, um, all this stuff was almost forgotten. So, so um, uh, I regard myself as an archaeologist digging up the past and reinterpreting it. And what I discovered, it's a long story, what I discovered is that Aquinas on the life of grace and the virtues can be understood in reference to a whole new field, which is this field of uh, second person relatedness. Um, and it's, it's, it's not looking at the world in a, in a third personal sense. So let me give you an example. You may, I hope, be familiar with St. Augustine's famous prayer, Late have I loved you. Late have I lived, loved you. Beauty so ancient and you. Late have I loved you. And he goes on this I thou, I thou discourse. Um, now you could rewrite that objectively. Um, there is a person, I, who's been late in loving another person, you. Um, but it sounds wrong. I hope you'll all agree it sounds wrong. Um, uh, if you if you have a, a beloved wife or husband, uh, I hope you don't use that kind of language with um, that beloved person, uh, because um, we're not meant to use that objective language, that third person language, in the context of love. Um, and because philosophers are a pretty hard-hearted bunch and very objective, uh, this stuff was ignored until the 20th century. Of course, it was a Jew, of course, the, the great people of the covenant, Martin Buber, who began to get us interested in this. And he wrote a book called Iron Thou in 1923. And it was, this book was followed up in a, in a slightly different way by Emmanuel Levinas. Uh, he talked about the face of the other, the face of the other. Um, those of you who've read Orwell, uh, 1984. We'll remember the the uh, terrible predict prophecy made by the interrogator O'Brien. He says 
If you want a picture of the future, imagine a boot stamping on the human face forever. That's the totalitarian impulse. Um, but I and thou, this is the, the expression of this directness, this direct love. Um, this is the this is what begins in the in the history of the Jewish people. It's really transfigured and brought to its fruit um, to a special fruitfulness in Christianity. Uh, and in both Judaism and Christianity, we talk a lot about covenant. Uh, that's all about the fruition of this process. So um, anyway, in the last 30 years, um, Buber's work has been put onto a more scientific basis, uh, particularly because we started to study very carefully certain conditions in which there is a lack of either relationship. And this particularly afflicts um, children with autistic spectrum disorder. And they've been, they've been a means and a motive for us to study these things very carefully. And they're teaching us a great deal, um, if we want to look at it. Um, and what, what those with ex extreme um, autism don't do that often, or find very hard, uh, is, is to share awareness of shared focus with another human being. Uh, and often that shared awareness and shared focus involves sharing an attitude towards a thing or an event in question. Uh, you go to a supermarket and look at um, uh, uh, harassed mothers, particularly normally swimming mothers, um, with their children. Children are always pointing to things, always running around, pointing, uh, drawing attention to things. And, it, and this is a, an invitation to engage in joint attention with the child. Um, so children do it all the time. Every time a child points, this is normally uh, an invitation to this shared awareness or shared focus, this second person relatedness. So it's very natural for children. And by the way, children within minutes of being born can smile back. Yes, the experiment has been done. Um, and that's pretty amazing because a child's never seen a human face before. So this, so the, the ability for us to relate second personally to other human beings is really hardwired into us uh, and it's if it goes quite standard we notice uh, and as i said it's been the subject of a lot of contemporary research okay so uh, here's children engaging in joint attention and um there's a shared awareness a shared focus involves sharing an attitude towards a thing or event in question and we study it particularly by looking at cases where that's not present or where it's reduced, uh, which is the case with ASD. Okay, so um, I think you don't need all that stuff, uh, but here's a point. I'll, I'll just move on a bit because it's more exciting to get on with this. Um, when you get to Aquinas on the, on the, on the virtues and the gifts of the spirit, this is the same kind of interaction he's describing. It was, I have to say, it was a moment of um, awe when I saw this. Um, and um, the work that contemporary psychologists are doing in joint attention pretty much matches the descriptions that Aquinas was given in the 13th century for how human beings are meant to relate to the Holy Spirit. So Aquinas on the gifts of the Spirit involves a shared awareness of shared focus with God. And that's why Aquinas on the virtues is different to Aristotle, because Aristotle, um, Aristotle knows there is a God, but Aristotle also denies we can be friends with God. Um, he says we, we, he denies we can be friends with any God, because gods are different to us, you know. But um, because of the incarnation, the situation has changed, and because of the, and because of the Holy Spirit. We're able to enter into shared awareness or shared focus with God, which is the whole secret of the Christian life. Uh, and almost what, what we, I think it's probably not, it's probably politically correct, incorrect today, but what we still call Western civilization is really a byproduct of that shared awareness or shared focus with God and of seeking its fruition. Uh, I could talk about that in the Q&A if you're interested. Um, okay. A uh, good example of, of joint attention in scripture between God and humanity, uh, the road to Emmaus. Uh, the disciples are discussing how sad, you know, how terrible it's been that 
Jesus has been crucified, and Jesus comes and stands beside them and you know, talks it over with them. And uh, it's, it's a fantastic example of joint attention uh, in the scripture. And the disciples say afterwards, our hearts burned within us, you know. Um, and so much of, particularly in the Catholic liturgy, so much involves joint attention. What, what is mass? A mass involves shared awareness and shared focus. We love with God what God loves, and we sacrifice with God what God sacrifices. It's, it's, we become God-like in that sense. Um, that's a fairly typical American mass, I think. <laughs> Not quite, but, you know, uh, a, slightly, a fairly high mass here, but, you know, a Dominican mass, of course, probably. Um, so shared awareness, shared focus. Now, um, I think the whole of Aquinas' virtue ethics can be understood in these terms, and it's really amazing. Uh, and here's one, here's one example of the many implications, and it's really puzzled scholars for a long time. Aquinas says we can lose all the virtues with a single action. We can lose all the virtues with a single action. And you have to understand that Aristotle says that's not possible. You can't dehabituate yourself with one action. Um, so uh, a virtue ethics of habituation fails but on a covenant on second person relatedness that makes sense because you can betray someone with one action and the habits don't necessarily go if you want an example of this think of Judas Judas um, it's interesting in the account of the Last Supper which will be really a mass before long uh, for Passion for the for Holy Week um, the Jews, it's not clear who the, who the traitor is to everyone else except Jesus. Now, how is that possible? Um, Judas is planning to sell our Lord for 30 pieces of silver, um, which doesn't, uh, ha but he's obviously got all the habits of an apostle. He can obviously fool the others. Um, so the habits are still there, the good habits but they're not oriented towards the flourishing of the relationship with God. So they've been cut off, uh, although they appear to still be there. Um, there's a lot more to say on that topic, but I'll leave it for now. Anyway, I'll mention briefly that the, the Beatitudes, also part of Aquinas' virtue ethics, um, are about actualizing the virtues and gifts. Uh, and it's a narrative. Uh, the whole, it's it's, it's um, a vast narrative from going from the poor in spirit to being children of God. Um, and uh, I'm writing a confirmation course based on the Beatitudes. And I, this February, I finished halfway through, halfway through. So I've, I've, got, I've got 10 pictures to paint. I've done half the pictures. Here are a couple here, just, just a bit of fun uh, on, on the way. Um, okay, so the goal of the Christian life, again, according to Aquinas, involves the fruits of the Spirit. And the fruits, I think, we are our resonances with God. It's um, when Aquinas describes benignity, the fruit, uh, one of the fruits of the Spirit, he describes it's like being on fire, it's like the soul melting to help others. Um, it's like the soul becoming godlike, becoming like the Holy Spirit um, uh, in, in a desire to help others. It's not, an, it's not a classical virtue. Um, and Psalm 22, my heart has become like wax, it's melted within my breast. So there's an awesome world, world here, Aquinas on the virtues. It's very second personal, and it's, it's got a narrative. Um, uh, and it gets us away from the trap of, um, I'd say, Calvinistic thinking, uh, or at least the kinds of problems that have been around about the last 500 years. I mean, who is causing who to do things? I mean, is salvation a result of um, God's unilateral decision, as a lot of Christians um, apparently believe, uh, or is there some kind of mutuality involved? And the second... Okay, so let's, um, let's just draw together some lessons from these accounts. So the first lesson from Exodus and the Sower and Aquinas' virtue ethics um, is God is a primary agent of predestination. God takes initiative by calling Moses, by scattering the seed in the parable, offering grace in the Holy Spirit. So 
that's fairly clear, I hope. Um, next conclusion. Uh, human persons can reject grace and predestination. This is the anti-Calvinist uh, lesson. Uh, in Exodus, neither Moses nor his people are forced to obey God and leave Egypt. In the parable of the sower, not all ground receives the seed. Um, my former supervisor, Elmer Stumps, uh, worked on this issue of quiescence of the will. Uh, the child doesn't want the injection, other doctors. But the child might just stop resisting the injection. <laughs> and, th and that may be enough to get the medicine into the, into the child's body. Um, so we've at least got to cease to resist grace. Uh, but we can resist. It's not the result of a single will alone, not a result of a, of a unilateral decision. And that was one of the teachers of the Council of Trent uh, in response to Protestantism. Now here's, uh, here's something else um, rather significant. Not all persons who accept grace or predestination are finally saved. Uh, in Exodus, actually most people who start the journey fail to obey God later. Some rebel against God entirely in the wilderness. The vast majority of those who set out on the journey and receive baptism don't get across the uh, River Jordan. Uh, now, there are different ways of interpreting that because you say it's, it's what about the story about one person losing the old habits of life and getting new habits. So there's, there's, a, there's another level of allegory here, um, which is not quite so grim. But nevertheless, the, lesson, the general lesson seems to be, the general sense of scripture seems to be not everyone makes it who starts the journey. And similarly with the power of the sower. And similarly in Aquinas' account of the life of grace. Because a person can, being moved by the Holy Spirit, Aquinas says, is not coercive. Uh, and a person can, ex can select an alternative, pseudo second person relatedness with a God substitute. If you want a, a simple definition of sin, sin is spiritual adultery. Spiritual adultery. Um, and that means there's a need for a, different, a new category. I was rather um, pleased to discover this or rediscover it because no one had ever taught me this. When I was considering these problems, I thought, ah, there must be something, there must be something corresponding to predestination which starts but doesn't finish. Uh, and lo and behold, there is a category. Um, now, apart from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, my main source to check things uh, is something called the Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma, which was published in 1956, I think. It's a, a, a translation from German, uh, when we can still trust the German theologians. Um, and as we know, nothing's changed in Vatican II, so it's completely valid. So it's everything, nothing's changed in dogma. Um, and lo and behold, I went hunting for this category of incomplete predestination and there it is it's in the book uh fundamentals of catholic dogma um it, it was rejected by the jansenists who are the catholic calvinists um but it's part of the tradition to hold that some that you could start the predestined life and fail to finish now this doesn't make any sense if you're thinking of predestination like the japanese silicon chip manufacturers because then it's just a unilateral decision. Yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. Um, and they sent us the, the two and a half percent of chips that don't work. Um, but uh, if you think about, about predestination as a cultivation in more organic terms, um, then it does make sense because someone can be cultivated, but it doesn't mean that the flower is going to be produced. Uh, and I include the example of Judas. Uh, Newman has a fantastic. Uh, sermon on pre on um, predestination, and he mentions Judas a lot. Uh, you know, and Jesus' compassion for Judas, even though he knows what's going to happen to Judas. Um, not everything that grows that starts the process of growing in the life of grace will bear fruit. Um, by the way, I once gave a talk at um, Fuller Seminary, which is like. Um, uh, it's like a, it's a non-Catholic Vatican in the United States. It's really a, a, a real centre for teach for in the Protestant world for teaching. I, I got a little bit of discussion with the professor. We then left the room, and um, he came back a few minutes later. I asked him what he'd been doing, and he was going, he was checking his copy of Ludwig Ott, Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma. <laughs> so even in full of seminary, they used this book. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, 
So uh, the other thing about this is that God dynamically reshapes the path of predestination. It's a, a phrase that Eleanor Sump used to quote to me, although I think she didn't originate it. But it's um, it's like playing chess with someone who wants you to win. And there are, I think there are cases in the Old Testament where God is dynamically rewriting the plan. I mean, God tells of Israel they shouldn't have a king. And they demand a king. We say, we want to be like everyone else. And in the end, God gives them a king, and then another king. And then, of course, the third king, who is Jesus. Um, and so it's like, but it's not the impression from Scripture. is that This wasn't the original plan. Um, but the plan has been rewritten in response to events uh, and sins. And again, if you think of God like a manufacturer, it doesn't work, this doesn't work so well. But if God is like a gardener, who prunes and fertilizes and cares for his crop to maximize its fruitfulness, uh, then, um, uh, then it sort of makes more sense. And I also think that human beings can shape the details and final state of their predestined path. Um, and let me just move ahead a bit because I want to give you an example of this. So uh, this lady here is Priscilla Tolkien, who is the daughter of J.R.R. Tolkien. And um, this was her birthday in Oxford in 2012. She's still alive and she still goes to mass nearly every day. Um, and I, I, I'm interested in Tolkien because he was a very devout Catholic. Uh, he may be predestined to be saved. Was he predestined to create Elvish? Um, was that in the pre-existent mind of God? Was Tolkien a robot that's just um, churning out the divine instructions for the uh, Vanyar elves or whatever? Um, or did, or did Tolkien actually create things? You see, people think about the faculty of freedom as choosing between good and evil. But this is not how it was originally meant in the Garden of Eden, in the uh, revealed symbolic history of the Garden of Eden. You see, God offers the human beings the choice of eating any of the trees in the garden, except one, which he knows they'll start eating straight away, of course. Um, but you see, there's there is room for human beings to shape the um, the outcome of their lives. I can't prove that, of course, but I can. Uh, that is the sense, I think, of the narratives of Scripture, as well as human children. You know, um, the child, as well as the parent, can initiate actions within the context of the relationship. God initiates a life of grace. The child can accept or not accept. And within the life of grace, the child can make decisions that shape the outcome of his or her life. So I'll tell you one of my decisions. I, mean, I want to write a decent confirmation course before I die. Um, and that's what I want to take into the kingdom of heaven. I leave on earth, of course. Um, but uh, so that's my, my personal request to God. Um, uh, and maybe God wanted me to do it. Uh, or maybe it's my decision. Um, uh, for which I ask for God's help. Okay, conclusions. So understanding the providence life of grace is, is difficult if one thinks in Cartesian terms, um, like reaching a point in an abstract space or manufacturing silicon chips by the Japanese uh, or in terms of prediction. Um, and, and those are not the metaphors that Revelation gives us. Uh, Revelation gives us stories of, of growth, of journeys, of joint attention. Uh, but we need to think about the world in more organic ways, including, as I would suggest to you, the life of predestination. And these are rich and freedom-enhancing accounts of predestination. Um, and these alternatives align well with traditional teaching, including partly forgotten categories like merit or incomplete predestination. Uh, human will contributes not only to attaining the goal, at least by ceasing to resist grace, um, but by shaping the characteristics and degree of glory for each particular human life. There's a famous statement by one of the most famous saints of the 20th century, a Trace of Lisieux. Trace of Lisieux was ambitious. She said, it's no sense being a saint by halves. Go for go for gold. Go for maximum. You know. um, 
not in a pelagianistic sense, but in the sense of, let me have it, Lord, whatever, <laughs> whatever you want to give me, which normally involves a lot of pain. Um, but you know, she was she was fruitful. Uh, when when Teresa Lisieux's bones came to Oxford, her bones came to Oxford in two thousand nine. We had thousands of people down the Woodstock Road. The police were holding back the crowds. Teresa Lisieux is one of our best missionaries. The fact she happens to be dead doesn't matter. Um, so God gives us the desires of the heart, not always where we expect. And you know, we're meant to become children of God, and children create. And um, great example from my country, J.R.R. Tolkien, the secondary creator. Um, and uh, freedom increases in a life of predestination. It doesn't decrease. So bottom line conclusions. It's just a repetition of those slides earlier. God is a primary agent of predestination. Human beings can reject grace of predestination. Not all persons who accept grace of predestination are finally saved. Uh, God dynamically reshapes the path of predestination. It's like playing chess with someone who wants you to win. And human beings can shape the details and final state of their predestined path. Uh, like doing something crazy, like inventing Elvish, I think. Um, so just to finish off, um, three books, Arrow of Time, Divine and Human Providence, The Second Person Perspective of Aquinas Ethics. Uh, it's an exciting time, and uh, there's a lot of good work that can be done on this, in this whole area. Uh, and I always have to try to finish with this, my favorite painting, um, the Van Eyck Mystic Lamb. Um, uh, Hitler stole this, but Hitler's soldiers stole this in World War II, by the way. Uh, General Patton's soldiers found it in the salt mine, surrounded with high explosives. There's an amazing, the, the survival of this picture is pretty amazing. Um, but here's a quotation from the first letter of John. Beloved, we are God's children now. It does not yet appear what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That's it. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Father Pinsent. I thank you for that very, very uh, uh, moving and insightful, insightful talk. Um, we have a couple minutes for questions, so um, let's see if I can uh, organize myself sharing. here. There we go. Um, so I think if we could start with, I apologize if I mispronounced this, uh, Father Peter Wignowski. Wignowski. Hello. Hello. Uh, that's, that was a heroic effort at my setting, thank you. And Father well Andrew, done. greetings. <laughs> greetings. From the, greetings from the Venerable English College. The Venerable uh, English College? Way! Way! <laughs> my, my, my alma mater, my, my um, old, old seminary, yes. There is life, wonderful. Indeed, we're, we're still here. My question was perhaps more directed at Providence in the more general sense in, in which we use it, but it's in no way irrelevant to what, what you've just presented. Perhaps you could comment on the relationship between sort of the more strongly we believe in God's providence, God's action or predestination, the way in which that intensifies problems of theodicy and how we reflect on the existence of pain and suffering in the world and how, because some of the literature that you read responding to suffering seems to want to, the temptation is to limit God's omnipotence in some either by language of kenosis or in some other way. Right. Um, but obviously what we actually believe about um, providence or divine action or having to express that would kind of take us in the other direction. So perhaps you could reflect on that a little bit. Thank you for that massive, massive problem. Um, <laughs> first, thing I, first thing I'd say is that um, other people have written a lot about this and I would recommend a book by um, my former supervisor, Eleanor Stump, who wrote a massive volume with Oxford University Press. It's called Wandering in Darkness. So if you want to really get into this problem, you should read Wandering in Darkness. And, and what she sees is very much, there's a link to this theme of second person relatedness. Mm -hmm. See, what does God want to bring about in us? Um, uh, if you want to give an example of this, look at the book of Job, book of Job in the Old Testament, which is all about suffering. Mm -hmm. And Job starts off the book, as the perfect man. I mean, Job never does anything wrong. And God blesses him. So he's got a good little thing going. Um, uh, he lives a perfect life and God um, gives him thousands of camels, you know. Um, and, and then it's the, then this simple relationship is, is broken 
uh, and he loses everything. He loses his children, uh, all his property, uh, and, and his health. Um, and then the whole book is exploring this, this dilemma of Job. Uh, how is he, you know, how to understand this? But what's significant by the, by the end of the book is that God, is that Job says, I want to see the face of God. In fact, I know I will see the face of God in the flesh. Um, so the relationship has actually subtly changed. At the beginning of the book, it's a contract. Um, God, so Job does good and God does good to Job. But by the end of the book, it's a covenant. It's loving with God the things God loves, seeing the face of God. And uh, you may, as a little coda, the three daughters of Job mentioned at the end, the most beautiful women in the world. And, the, and they were interpreted spiritually as faith, hope, and love. So that's what's been brought about by suffering. There's a lot of pointless suffering. Um, but one thing God can do with suffering, if human beings will cooperate enough with it, is to bring about um, this ultimate goal of shared awareness or shared focus with him. Very good. Um, I think we have time for perhaps uh, one more question. Um, so, uh, I do, uh, so Luca Settimo, if you... Oh, hello. Hi, Andrew. <laughs> Long hello. Time. Oh, Luca. Yes, how are you doing? I'm all right, thank you. Uh, I just would like to ask you uh, one question. Uh, you remember at the beginning, you actually showed this beautiful table, natural life, a supernatural life, yes. all this correspondence. Yes. Um, even with the talk uh, before, there was this idea that uh, even reading in Genesis, for example, there is this uh, idea, for example, this light that separates from matter. So as, uh, and, and that's reflected also scientifically, like the, there is this book of uh, the creation and the, and the scriptures. However, we know that many, many theologians are very cautious to, to actually merge these two books correctly. So. Uh, think the sentence of Galileo Galilei when he said that uh, science explains how to uh, how heaven works, not how to go to heaven. So it's, it's nice. almost like like a separation. I'm wondering, is there do do you think is a correct approach to make sure that somehow this book is one? And I'm thinking in particular, since this is a conference of Aquinas, there is actually a question. Uh, in the Summa Theologia uh, 66, where, when Aquinas discussed the, the, the problem, well, not the, the creation, that he says that, uh, you know, there were four elements at that time, water, uh, air, uh, earth, and air, right? The four, so he says, he, he actually criticized, he said that, that air and fire are not mentioned by name, is that because they, uh, they were ignorant they only knew the hurt and, 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 and water. So it's much, more, it's much more scientifically like we would be nowadays. Uh, so all, always that these two books are merged in one. So I wonder, and I like the presentation of all the different interpretation of scriptures, whether this, correct, this is the correct way to, rather than to separate the book of nature and the book of scripture, whether these two can actually be conflated in one. Right. Um, this is a really difficult topic, that's the first thing, and it's very easy to go wrong. Um, so, um, I, in that slide, I distinguish the two, because the, the challenge we face today is a sort of indiscriminate mixing. Um, and therefore, I want to emphasize the distinction. But this is not this is not God's end goal. I mean, God, God's end goal is, to, is for us to all live the life of grace and to, 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 um, to interact with the world from a perspective of grace. Um, and if you, if, you, if you want to have an example of the fruitfulness of that, think of who gets Nobel Prizes in, in physics and in medicine uh, and in science generally. And it's... Um, almost everyone comes is either Jewish or Christian. And it's, it's the covenantal people who've um, been most fruitful, really, in the sciences. Um, and we talked about um, Professor Oberg's talk about um, Georges Lemaitre. Um, you know, the two big 
biggest theories in science of the 20th century. One was both invented by priests, the theory of genetics and the theory of the Big Bang. Um, and people, uh, there was something that wasn't mentioned in the first talk, but I want to mention it now. Um, uh, it was true that Pius XII was over-enthusiastic about interpreting um, uh, the Big Bang as a sort of proof of genesis. And that's the thing people remember. People forget the big picture. The church accepted it. The Soviet Union rejected it. And they said, we've got to oppose the Big Bang theory. It's encouraging the clerics. Uh, almost no one knows that today, um, but um, you can read more about that anyway. So what? So from the point of view of the life of grace, uh, the life of nature has opened up in many ways. That's how it's meant to be. Um, but we make ourselves, uh, we cut ourselves off from God and we cut ourselves off more, more from the world, you know, uh, if we lose grace. 